Good evening. It's wonderful to have all of you here tonight. For any of you that are new to the program, we love science here, including chemistry. And you know, chemistry is kind of like cooking. Just don't lick the spoon. That's the big difference. So keep that in mind. Let's get it to Dr. John and the Technology Spotlight. Well, tonight we're going to talk about something that's practically science fiction. Pretty amazing. But instead of superheroes, we've got superconductors. And this is an amazing thing that's going to revolutionize a lot of different things if it can really take off. And let me kind of explain what I mean. A superconductor is something that can conduct electricity with zero resistance. So you don't waste any of the energy going across it. So one application that would be amazing is if we could have all of our power lines that go between cities or between the power generation station and the big city, if those could be superconductors, we wouldn't waste so much electricity. We're wasting around 5% of all the power we produce right now just on those transmission lines. So it'd be like all of a sudden we have 5% more power. So that would be an amazing application. Another really neat thing would be um, more efficient transformers. Remember, a transformer has a wire around really tight, or uh, lots and lots of turns, I guess, and um, it generates a little bit of heat, and that heat is wasted energy because of that resistance. Well, if it was a superconductor, then you could have much more efficient coils. Uh, but it goes on and on and on. There are a lot of neat things. You could make really efficient motors and a lot of applications like that, but also you can do some pretty amazing magnetic levitation with superconductors as well. If you take a piece of superconducting material and you try to put a magnet close to it, it'll push it away. But then if you force the magnet closer to it, then uh, when you let go, the magnet will stay right there hovering above the object. And I want to show you a picture that uh, kind of shows how that works. See that superconducting um, material down there and the magnets floating over. The amazing part is not only is it repelling like a normal magnet, but if you were to take that superconductor and flip it upside down, then the magnet would stay right there. It not only is repelling the magnet, but it's also pulling the magnet at the same time, holding it right there at that position. And they've done experiments where they've made magnetic levitating trains, for example. And having no friction or very little friction underneath makes it so the train can run much more efficiently. So by now, you're probably wondering, why isn't this everywhere? Why don't we use this for you know, floating cars and you know, all kinds of amazing things? Uh, one other application that I have to throw in, because I think it's so cool, is power storage. You can actually, this is the kind of thing I would have thought of when I was five, you know. You just put the power on, running down a bunch of wire, and then you leave, hook it up the other end, and it just keeps going around the wire, right? You know, that's what I would have thought of when I was five. But with a superconductor, there's no resistance, and so they're actually doing this in some experiments where they are storing electricity in the superconductor like that. And then you can draw it out really quickly, much better than you can with the battery. And the charge time is amazing, too. So again, why aren't we using this everywhere? And there's one big problem with all of the superconductors we know about. They have to be really, really cold. And I'm not talking just like, you know, snowy day cold. I'm talking about super close to zero Kelvin cold, which is really, really, really cold. And uh, recently, they've been developing some Warm, they call them high-temperature superconductors. High-temperature means, oh, around minus 140 Celsius. <laughs> that's still really cold, but that's way warmer, so, you know. <laughs> uh, so this is a big problem that we're trying to understand, and the big problem here is that we don't understand why these high-temperature superconductors are superconducting. And if we did, we might be able to make a room-temperature version, which would be really amazing. We could do all that neat stuff. Uh, and this is where our other superhero in the story comes in. We're going to talk about graphene. Do you remember what graphene is? Graphene is 
just carbon atoms connected together in a really special way to where it makes a two-dimensional sheet. And uh, it's transparent, it's flexible, and it's 200 times stronger than steel. Pretty amazing stuff. In fact, I have some, well, this isn't actually graphene, but this kind of shows you the structure. If you zoom in, you can see how there are these little hexagons, and this demonstrates the structure of graphene. If you look at the side, it's super thin, one atom thick, and then at each of these little junctions is where there would be a carbon atom. And they hook together and make this lattice. It's really, really sturdy. It's flexible, it's transparent, does all these amazing things. Well, some researchers were studying graphene, and they came up with this idea. What if you took a sheet of graphene, and then you took another sheet of graphene, and you put one on top of the other, like this? Then you would have two sheets of graphene, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> then, with some simulations, they kind of predicted this, and then they had to go and try it really strange things start to happen when you twist the graphene a little bit. And I'm going to try to show you what, kind of how it looks like. I'm going to hold it down here in the corner, and I'm going to twist around that axis, and you can see how it starts to make a pattern, and see how there's like a, almost like a circle inside of the pattern that moves around. And uh, what they found is that there's a really, really special angle. If you didn't see that good, I want to show you this uh, little GIF. And you, you can see the, the movement here. Let's see if I hit it again. There we go. You can kind of see that up close, what's going on there. Um, there's a really fascinating pattern here, and if you think about what's happening, these are carbon atoms held at a certain position being moved uh, in alignments with each other. And it's a very complex alignment, but they found that there's a special angle, 1.1 degrees where if the two sheets are turned just that much, just a teeny bit, then something really, really amazing happens. At this special angle, they call it the magic angle, then you start to get superconductivity. And it's not superconductivity everywhere, it's only in certain spots. And in other spots, instead of superconductivity, you get an insulator, which means it doesn't let any electricity through. So right there, next to each other, they have these two things happening. And um, this is really fascinating because it's a similar property that they see with high temperature superconductors. Remember, minus 140 degrees Celsius high temperature? <laughs> and that those are what they're trying to understand. And here they have a more controlled environment with these uh, carbon atoms. So they've been doing some experiments, and this is, I want to say it was this lab or it was that lab, but it's actually been several labs internationally working on this and uh, multiple papers coming out on this technology. But they've been studying this process, the 1.1 the degree magic angle of the carbon sheets. They developed a way to actually make that, which was really hard. Uh, but now they found that by changing the current or the voltage going through their sample, it actually changes whether it's a superconductor or an insulator or maybe a magnet. And so, uh, that sounds like fiction too, doesn't it? <laughs> like, what in the world? Uh, but they think that with this new way to study it, they might be able to learn why this is happening and start to understand how superconductors could be made that were room temperature, which would be an amazing thing if they could do it. But also, that turning on and off sounds a lot like a semiconductor, doesn't it? So they might be able to make some really amazing supercomputers and uh, maybe quantum computers using this technology. Or maybe even just a really low power computer that is a lot like our conventional computers. Pretty neat stuff. All of this sounds a little bit like science fiction, you know. I, I wonder if they could make me fly with those superconductors, you know. Then, then I could be super too, right? Let's go. <laughs> Now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. <laughs> uh, you know, when you 
research all these breakthroughs, inventions, and stuff. Sometimes you just kind of sit there and you're like, think about Edison and Bill Lear, Roger Billings. What are must be like to invent something? You're like, man, I mean, think about it. If you invented something, what does that feel like? It doesn't have to be science tech. Maybe it's a gadget or a clothing piece or a new word or something. My three-year-old walked outside one night and she was like, whoa, the crickets are cricketing. And I was like, she's invented a word. And it's so much better. Um, <clears throat> but inventions are pretty amazing things. And you never know where they're going to come from, how they're going to happen. But tonight we're going to talk about something called Kevlar and how it was invented. Now, Kevlar, some of us are some of those people where when we talk about Kevlar, you know, you're in a conversation and they're like, yeah, I made this with Kevlar. And everybody's like, oh, wow. And you're like, whoa, who's Kevin? And it's like, no. So we're going to talk about what Kevlar is and how it came to be. So we need to talk about Stephanie Qualick. Now, she was born in the 1920s, and she kind of had two passions, okay? She had, one was fashion design, uh, and the other one was teaching. And so she decided that if she's going to be a teacher, she needs to pursue science. So she starts pursuing science, and as she got more and more involved with science, she realized, you know what, I want to research. I love researching. So she started researching. Um, and pursuing that career. She wanted a career where she could look into something and explore something in the field of science. Well, eventually, she would get hired by DuPont, and she was on a team of uh, working on synthetic fibers, okay? And at the time, by now, it's in the 1960s, and DuPont came to the team and said, okay, here is your assignment. We have a new challenge, and that is we need to make a substance for tires. Now, at the time, there was a big spike in gasoline prices, and cars were getting heavier. Cars were moving faster, so tires needed to be stronger. But the solution at the time mainly was putting these steel pieces and netting and um, structures inside of the tire to keep it strong. But still, of course, is very heavy, so it burns more fuel. And so the, the mission that he gave to Stephanie and the team was design some kind of polymer that can replace the steel that is hopefully as strong as the steel but not as heavy. And if we get something like that, we'll have a real advantage in the industry. So they're working on coming up with some kind of polymer uh, system that's going to do this. Now, polymer is generally when we're talking about polymer, we're talking about these molecules that are arranged in like a, a line or a chain. So it's like a string of these molecules, all the same, repeating in like a string. Okay. Now, when these researchers at DuPont thought they had a polymer that could work, what they would end up with, if you knew you, to know that you have something that's ready to be tested, usually you're looking for a clear, a perfectly clear gel-like substance. It's liquid, but it's thicker than like water. So it's like a, a gel, and you want to make sure it's clean and clear, okay? And the reason why is because what they would do next is they would run it through a spinner. They called it a spinner, and it would basically take it through this process of pushing it through this tiny little pathway through a tiny needle, and out the other end, they would roll it on like a spool, okay? So that's w what, what they were working on. So once you had your solution, you would take it, and they would test it. Well, Stephanie came up with this interesting mixture, and the end product was not clear. It was kind of cloudy, and it was not like a gel. It was extremely runny. And generally, you're, she was trained that if you get something like that, you need to throw it away and start over. Well, she decided to stay with that, and she decided to try it. So she took it to the spinner, and she said, hey, will you spin this? And he looked at it, and he said, nope. Reason number one, it's way too runny. If I put that in, it'll just, like, fall out. Reason number two, it's clearly not clean. It's not clear. If I run that through, a tiny little speck gets in my needle. It could um, make the whole machine not work. So he said no. And eventually, after being asked multiple times, um, he said okay. And they spun it. And when they spun it, they were shocked at how well it spun. And then after, she had, she had the, the polymer, and she took it and started doing the tests that they do with it. And it was nine times stronger than any of the other substance uh, polymers that she had made up to that point. 
and she realized, whoa, I might have something. And she said that when she got to this point, she did, did it several more times because she didn't want to take this to management and then have it, she was mistaken because this was like too good to be true. Well, it was consistent. And she took it to her management and they were shocked and they realized this is something really special. Now it was called, and here, here's the word for it, polyparathenylene terephthalate. So they called it Kevlar. <laughs> and why was this so magical? Well, I have something to help us understand, okay? Now these may be pearls from a three-year-old that her dad took. Um, or these could be, if we imagine, her, her polymer, okay? So here's her polymer, all of those molecules inside, and they're all randomized, okay? But when we stick it through the spinner, you can almost imagine if it starts pulling it into these more organized strands. And as they get into these strands and they get in line, there starts to be a stronger pull or connection between them. And they don't get in a perfect line of one molecule, they get in multiple lines. And why is that a big deal? Well, if we think about it, so if you can imagine this as being one of the, the polymer strands, okay? One of these may be strong, I mean, the connection between them, but what if you get multiple ones? And to, to show you the power of this, I wanna call up a specimen. So we have a fine specimen who's gonna come up and show us the strength of the specimen. So he's gonna break the pencil. Wow, <laughs> such strength, okay. But now what if we took a bunch? Don't mess this, okay? Don't, you better not break that. So hold it up so we can see it. All right. So. Okay, okay. I heard a tiny crack. We're going to stop there. All right. Thank you. Let's hear it for our scientists, our specimen. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. It, they're, they're in lines, but they're multiple lines, parallel but there's something else that's really important. They're not just by each other. They are bonded together with a very special kind of bond. James Bond? No. <laughs> hydrogen bonds. And these have hydrogen bonds holding all of these polymers together into something that is extremely strong. So if you look at this, here's, here's a real zoomed in look of two of these rows. And you can see in the middle there, well, all of the dotted or the dashed lines, that's hydrogen bonds holding these together. And this, along with some other things, makes this extremely strong. These are used, this uh, Kevlar is used in things like bulletproof vests, um, helmets. They use these on sailboats for high-speed racing boats. They use them in fiber optic cable. They use them in spacesuits. So all over the place, this thing that should have been thrown away if she followed the training, but she decided to go test it. So sometimes when you're trying to invent something and you're just so eager to make an invention, don't be so hasty to throw it away. Keep trying and don't give up because if you give up, you're just taking away time. You could be working and all that while the crickets are cricketing. So <laughs> thank you. All right. And now introducing Roger Billings. Very nice. That one was good. That was really good. So uh, we've had a pretty wild night so far tonight. John is doing magic <laughs> and levitating. And Tobias is making enemies with his little daughter. <laughs> pretty exciting. Thank you, guys. Very, very good reports. like to welcome everyone today. It's exciting to talk about science. And I'd like to welcome all of you here. We have a few guests tonight. We especially want to welcome you here. And especially, especially need to welcome. Thank you. Peje Monet. Peje Monet. You know, uh, she has a website now. Please don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> she does. Peje Monet.com. And, and, and don't go look because you she hasn't what? got it up. 
<laughs> it says hello world right now. <laughs> hello world. Hello world. Isn't that exciting? Her hello world is coming. Was thinking about, you know, we ought to have ideas on what to put there. And I was thinking, you know, the science of what to put on pagemonet.com. I had the ideas. We could put there what she should wear. You know, like, that would be good advice we could give her. For the show? What I should wear on the show? Yeah. That'd be fun. Wouldn't that be fun? Uh-huh. All of your little alien friends could come and post. <laughs> I love That'd it. be really fun. <laughs> yep. Another piece of news. Uh, something kind of fun's happening right now. We put up a little hydrogen video on... Um, the Roger Billings Dash Acellus Facebook site. And it's been uh, kind of being looked at a lot. Uh, it's, it's interesting that people are interested in hydrogen. Mm -hmm. In fact, even Tobias tonight was interested in hydrogen bonds. <laughs> yeah. Hydrogen is a very important atom, isn't it? The smallest atom in the universe the most abundant atom in the universe, and one that has uh, had a very big impact on, on my career and my life. And I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about hydrogen tonight. In fact, I'd like to talk specifically about metal hydrides. Hair dries? I, I, have, I blow dry my I hair dry every, <laughs> every morning. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> That's not what you said, was yeah, it? That, that was what I was thinking. Well, <laughs> <laughs> hair dry is And I just want, want to say that we're really grateful your hair is dry tonight. Yes. <laughs> That's wonderful. And I if, did it just for the show. If it was wet, it probably would be hydrogen molecules. Yes, you hydrogen don't want to like that. Yeah, That's coming out great. of the pool. <laughs> no, actually, I want to talk about something called metal hydride. And I'm going to see if I can get this little camera on for a minute. This is a powder. I'm going to pour some of it out so we can look at it. Just a little powder. And yet, uh, this is a, a powder that has caused a lot of very, very interesting adventures for me. Metal hydrides are a chemical compound between a metal and hydrogen. And you say, well, okay, what does that mean? And I, I think it's interesting to back up a little bit. Uh, the other day, I tried something really dangerous. I tried salt. You tried salt? It was really dangerous, yes. Because salt is made up of chlorine. Mm -hmm. And chlorine is a very dangerous poisonous gas. And the other thing that makes up salt is sodium. Sodium is a metal. And it's a metal that is so reactive that if you drop a piece of sodium metal into water, it'll bubble around, catch fire. And so I ate that stuff. <laughs> but before I ate it, I let it be reacted together to form salt. Salt has very different properties than chlorine or sodium. We call it sodium chloride, but think about it. Sodium is such a dangerous metal. Chlorine is such a poisonous gas. Put them together, and you have ordinary table salt, which we eat all the time. And in fact, it's an important part of our bodies. It's something that makes the oceans have salt water. And in the case of hydrides, you have hydrogen gas, which has the property of if you ignite it, it will burn. But if you combine it with these metal alloys, then it forms this hydride compound, and it doesn't burn. In fact, it's a very safe way to store hydrogen. The magic about this particular hydride is that it has a very weak chemical bond, so we can pull the hydrogen back out when we need it to run our car. Now, the idea was hydrogen is hard to store, and especially it's hard to store in a way that's very safe. And so if we could react the hydrogen with a metal alloy, and make a powder like this that wouldn't be flammable. The powder would hold the hydrogen securely, but then get it out when we needed it for our engine or for our fuel cell, we would have something very, very interesting. Now, I want to show you the very first car that actually worked in running off of this metal hydride powder. Now, 
You notice I didn't say the very first one we built. <laughs> the first car that we built was a uh, Monte Carlo, and it had a liquid hydrogen tank in the trunk, and so underneath we mounted our first attempt to build a hydride tank, and it didn't work. And I'm, I'm going to kind of share with you a little bit of that adventure, but I'm going to jump to the first car that did work, and I'm going to show you a little clip. This is a Pontiac Granville, and in the trunk, I want you to see the middle hydride tank. Here we go. Look at it. That is the car, and here in the trunk, can you see that tank? It's inside the shiny metallic part. That is the part where the metal hydride is stored. So this worked. We actually were able to charge it and discharge it. How do you charge it? It's just like inflating a tire. You hook up a line like an air hose, like you're going to inflate your tire, only it's hydrogen. Hydrogen flows into the tank, and it disappears in that it gets reacted with the metal powder inside. And so a hydride tank stores an enormous amount of hydrogen for its volume at that pressure, about 20 times more densely than if it was just an empty tank. And so... What is this metal hydride, and how do you go about making it? I'd like to show you now a crystal. This crystal is iron titanium alloy. This is a crystal that we make. Can you see that rock? Let's zoom around it so they can see a little better. This is a crystal that we made by melting two metals together in a furnace. And I have to say that when we were going to build this car, with hydrogen stored safely in a metal hydride, there wasn't a place just to go to the store and say, could we get a couple pounds of hydride metal? And so we had to go find a furnace, and we found one that was being sold on surplus. And the kind of furnace we got is a furnace that uses a radio transmitter to transmit in a coil. It's an induction furnace. And so the stuff wouldn't react with air we, we had a vacuum chamber inside which the furnace was built where we could alloy things together. Now, we could buy titanium metal. In fact, I found I could find a supplier of titanium scrap that was pretty affordable. So I put the scrap in, and then I need the source of iron. And you have to have about the right ratio between iron and titanium. In fact, it needs to be just about perfect or you don't get the right crystal structure and it doesn't work. My source of iron, for you guys that have been around construction, was those metal rods they put in sidewalks and things called rebar. And we got some scrap rebar, cut it up, weighed it, and put it into our little furnace with the titanium. Now, we had to add another magic ingredient that we didn't know about at first. And, and that magic agreement I'd like, or ingredient I want to talk about in a minute because it really was a key to making this all work. So remind me, we've got to talk about the magic ingredient okay. and why. And there's a fascinating part to the story about this magic ingredient because it's almost every project that I've been involved in that it looks like it's going to be pretty simple, and we try it, and it works a little bit, or it almost works. But then until you keep making effort and find the magic ingredient, it doesn't really achieve the job. And so when you're doing research, when you're making Kevlar, or whatever you're doing, just plan a little bit of extra time to solve the extra problems that come up. Okay, now I want to go back to this alloy. So the alloy was made in our furnace, and it, it was like uh, when we poured it out, it made an ingot of that metal like the crystal you saw. We actually hit that piece of metal that we poured out and let it cool. We hit it with a sledgehammer, and it broke like glass. And so we took those chunks of hydride alloy and dropped them into a thing called a jaw crusher. A jaw crusher is a machine that you can buy that has these two big jaws and a motor, and the jaws go back and forth together. And if you have something brittle, like this particular alloy was, it just breaks it into little pieces. 
Would you like to see that? Mm -hmm. All right, look at this. This is the jaw crusher. So you would drop the metal in there, and it just vibrates. And out the other side, it comes out like these little pieces of alloy about the size of a pea. And you can see these all dropping down the bin. Now, this alloy is placed inside a tank. And here we got a cutaway so you can see. So we put it inside the tank. The tank is clear full of this stuff. Now, if I hook that tank up to a cylinder of hydrogen and open the valve and let the hydrogen start flowing into it, it doesn't flow. And the reason it doesn't flow is because the hydride has not been activated. And what does activated mean? Well, first of all, those little pieces of that alloy have oxide. They've reacted with oxygen all the way around them, and the oxygen blocks the hydrogen from getting in. Furthermore, those big chunks have so much surface area that it really can't react with a lot of hydrogen. And so we have to turn those pea-sized pieces into this very fine powder like I have right here. This is a very, very fine powder that you can see even just sticks on my finger. How do you get it to go down to this small size? And the way we did it was what we called the popcorn method. <laughs> yeah, popcorn method. You know how you make popcorn? You, uh -huh. you put the popcorn kernels into a puffer, and then you turn it on, and, pop, 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 and they start popping. Well... We would hook up this cylinder full of this hydride petals or, or particles about the size of a pea, put the pressure on, and you'd listen to it, and you'd hear it start to pop. pop, 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 pop. And it'd pop faster and faster and faster. And what was happening is these little chunks of hydride were blowing up like popcorn into these little teeny pieces. And you just hear this thing pop, and it popped for about a half hour. Then we'd take the hydrogen out, and then we'd pull a vacuum on it with a vacuum pump and heat it up. Then we'd let it cool, and we'd put in the hydrogen again, and it'd pop even faster. And it took three cycles to get it activated. And once it was activated, it was ready to use. And you could store a lot of hydrogen. Well, the particles started out as the great big chunk that we poured from in, into a mold, which we broke up with a sledgehammer. We put it in the jaw crushers. We got the pea-sized particles. Now we put it into this activation tank, and we charged it with hydrogen. We heated it, pulled a vacuum three times, and it got down to a very fine powder. And this is the part where we ran into the big problem. So you've, you've got to understand the idea of this tank. I'm going to try and draw a tank for you here, and this is going to be really good, I'm sure. Here's the bottom of the tank, the side. Isn't that a beautiful tank? <laughs> Original art. Right and there. here's the pipe coming out, and we, we always put a little valve here so we can turn it on and off. All right, there's our tank. And inside we have all of these little particles of hydride. Are you with me so far? Well, when I put the hydrogen in, the hydrogen reacts with this metal and changes it from shiny metal to the hydride powder. And then when you open the valve, guess what comes out? The gas, the hydrogen, and the powder comes shooting out too. So we mounted a little filter here. And the filter we used was a piece of sintered titanium. Sintering is a process where you take a lot of very fine particles, like titanium particles in this case, you kind of force it into the shape you want, and then you flash weld it. And so you get all these little particles stuck together, but it's porous. And you can let the gas flow through, but it keeps the powder inside. And so we put in a sintered titanium filter, and lo and behold, we had a tank. As we charged it, some of the particles still popped. They were already pretty small, but they'd pop even smaller. And every time we charged it, the particles would get smaller and smaller. Our filter was, had holes that were so small, they're measured in microns. It was a 10, 10 micron filter. 
And pretty soon, the particles became so small, they went right through the filter, and we had our hydride shooting outside. And of course, we were using it then to run an engine. If you get a very small powder in an engine, it ruins it. So that wasn't neat. And so we got a more fine filter, the finest we could buy. It worked for a few charges, but those particles kept breaking down and breaking down and kept getting smaller. And no matter what filter we put there, pretty soon the hydride would start coming out. What do you do? Well, we went clear back to the beginning where we were making the alloy in the furnace. And so if you can imagine, we've got a, a melting pot. We put the titanium in it, and then we put the same weight of iron in it, rebar. But then we put the magic ingredient, which was manganese. <laughs> and the amount of manganese that we put in was just a pinch. It was just a little impurity, a dope. And how did we learn to put manganese in there? We researched the scientific literature mm -hmm. and found out that it would change this coefficient of expansion so that it wouldn't keep breaking down. By the way, scientists call this action of breaking down smaller and smaller every charge as decrepitation. And the manganese was supposed to stop that from happening. So we added the manganese, we made a new batch, we poured it in the mold, we broke it with a sledgehammer, we put in the jaw crusher, we put it in the tank, we activated it, and lo and behold, it never, ever came through the 10 micron filter. Problem solved. So we were able to use this to make cars. Now, what is so neat about metal hydrides? One of the things that's really neat is it's very safe. Um, I have to tell you about an experiment we did one day. You know, if you have a cylinder full of a high-pressure gas, and you store it as compressed gas, if that car were to ever get in an accident where it would break the tank open, all the pressure in there would release at once, and it could be kind of scary. So hydrogen's a gas. Hydrogen is a gas, okay. except when it reacts with a hydride, it becomes a powder. It's like chlorine's a gas, but when it reacts with sodium, it becomes salt, which is a powder. And that, that happens very often. When chemicals react together, the thing that results has very different properties than the things that react, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we wanted to know. That's what we wanted to know. Mm -hmm. We need to keep you and your people happy <laughs> at all costs, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so... What we did is we took one of these hydride tanks, like the one here on, on the paper, and we charged it clear full of hydrogen. And then we took it outside and we tied it down. And up above it, we lifted a great big disc that was heavy and thin. And we put a pin in it so if we pulled the rope, this disc would fall down and it would chop the top off the tank. We figured that's got to be about the worst accident that you could have. Did you come up with that? And what can you imagine <laughs> would happen if this didn't have the hydride in here storing the hydrogen chemically, it would have shot off like a rocket because the hydrogen would have come out so fast it would have been jet propelled. Mm. In fact, I think I got a clip. Do you want to see I it? I want to see it. You want to see our, we, we used yes. to call this the hydride execution scene. Oh my gosh. You want to see it? <laughs> All right. So we're going to have a little countdown here. Let's, wow. let's take a look at this. Here we go. Five, Five four, four, three. How two, does the hydride cylinder one, behave? Oh. Wasn't that impressive? You can hear the hydrogen coming out very slow. And only a little bit because all of the rest of it's tied up in that chemical bond. That is cool. And so it's a very, very, very safe way to store hydrogen. And I think that's, that's kind of important. It was very important for the experiences and the projects we were doing. Now, what did we do with this? A lot of people experiment with stuff and they imagine what they could do and I don't like to imagine. I like to try it. I wanted to build a car. I showed you the picture of the Pontiac. It had the very, very first hydride tank. That hydride tank inside 
had tubes made of stainless steel with ends welded on in which we put this alloy inside them. How do you put the alloy inside a welded tube? Exactly. That was a real challenge. And uh, it worked. We drove the car, but it really wasn't very practical. So we went on through different generations, and we built more advanced and more manufacturable and more efficient hydride tanks. We built one for a little electric car. It was a Sebring Vanguard car, which could only go 25 miles, and then you had to recharge the batteries. And we made it so it would go 200 miles on one charge of hydrogen. That was kind of neat. Then we put it into a bus. And the bus could travel all day, eight hours, hauling passengers around town without a recharge. In fact, we ended up building one for Riverside, California also. So we built two buses with these hydrides which made it a very safe way to carry hydrogen. We also converted a postal vehicle, a post office Jeep, with one of these hydride tanks, and they used it here in Independence to deliver mail. Uh, now, that was kind of special to me because my dad was a letter carrier. He worked for the post office, and, uh, well, I even have a little clip of my dad driving the postal Jeep. You want to see some of these cars that were using metal hydrides? Let's, let's show you that. Okay, here's the first hydrogen bus. There's the little electric car. There's the pulse jet. That's my dad. <laughs> Handsome, isn't he? And this is the energy shack at the first hydrogen home. And there's another close-up of the hydrogen bus. So here's a lot of the vehicles that we actually put this into, and it worked. And an interesting thing. How long will these hydrides work before they won't charge anymore? Interestingly, we found out that we could go through so many recharge cycles that when a car was wore out, the hydride tank would still be as good as new and you'd move it to your next car. And even with a million miles of driving, these hydrides would still be, be usable. So it's kind of a, a neat little technology one we're kind of proud of. Do you think you could spell it for us? Oh, I'm not a speller. Let's give it a try. H-Y Hydride. Not hair dry. Not hair dry. Hydride. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's it. Hydride. Metal hydride. And we call it metal hydride because it's made of iron and titanium with just a little teeny pinch of manganese. There are other metal hydrides too, like there's um, lanthanum nickel um, and many others. But this is the one that works the best because we run the, the water from the engine or the exhaust from the engine around the tank to drive the hydrogen out. When you put hydrogen in, it gives off heat. And when you want to get the hydrogen out, you have to warm it gently. And you can take the waste heat from an engine whether through the exhaust or the cooling water, and it's, it's enough energy to dissociate the hydride and make it work. So did you file for patents on that? Oh, lots of patents. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yep. I call you the hydrogen man. <laughs> I would rather think of myself as... Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm waiting. You know, um, we got my website out. The hydrogen, <laughs> the hydrogen project's been a lot of fun for me for a long, long time. Uh, started in high school, and then after I had the privilege of working with Bill Lear and being mentored by him, I went back and started the hydrogen company. If I had not been very fortunate to have been picked up by Bill Lear to be mentored, I don't think I would have started the hydrogen company. I would have waited for it to happen. Mm. And Lear taught me a lot of things, and one of the things he taught me was you can do things like that. You can go start a company. I tell you, but not me, you know, I don't have money. I once told him that I was going to do a project if I could get some money, but I can't right now because I don't have money. You have to have money to make money. A lot of people say that. You have to have money to make money. Bill Lear didn't agree. He said, if you'll get your ducks in a row, 
which means you figure out what you're going to do, plan how you're going to do it, get all of the things worked out for your project. He says money will come out of the woodwork. And throughout my career, that's been the case. We've always had the funds to do the project if we get it all figured out. If we really know what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, work out the details, then there are a lot of people that want to come and invest and be part of it. Uh, when we were working on this project early on, uh, seeing my father there, uh, who's now passed away, but uh, brought back a lot of memories. When I converted the very, very first lawnmower engine, I, I thought it was, you know, we've conquered the world, but then I wanted to convert a car. And I found a, an old, 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 old video clip of me telling the story about converting the car and my wonderful father and how he helped me. Would you like? I would. Would you like to take a peek at this? I would absolutely. Now, I just want to to make sure everybody understands that the the person in this video is me. <laughs> I love it. Okay, and okay. it may not quite look like it, but it is. Okay, let's take a look. The little lawnmower engine running on hydrogen to me was the culmination of many years of hard work and I, I remember running down the stairs and calling everybody I knew to tell them I, I it worked you know I'm rich it worked <laughs> the following day for breakfast I discussed with my father the need for a vehicle to experiment on now that I had a lawnmower engine running and my father had just purchased a brand new Chevrolet that he was very proud of. And I said, this is your opportunity, Dad, to be a very famous uh, person assisting science by donating your new automobile. And he uh, just couldn't be convinced uh, that that experiment should take place. So the next day at school, I convinced one of my fellow students who had a little Volkswagen that uh, this is his chance to carve out a place in history by letting me use his car. And that night after school, we backed it up on the steps of the school, and I started converting the car to hydrogen. And someone tipped off my father, who arrived and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm converting this car to hydrogen. And he said, if you've got to blow up a car, blow up my old Model A. Within three days, the, the Model A was running on hydrogen. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Blow up a car. <laughs> so the kids want that, to know. That's not what you should say around <laughs> hydrogen. You don't say blow thought, up. Mm -hmm. Oh, blow, blow. Yeah. So they're wondering what makes a hydride so safe in the vehicle. We're trying to understand that fact. Well, what makes chlorine so safe in salt? Because chlorine yeah. is deadly poisonous, and yet uh -huh. we eat salt all the time. And it really is this chemical bond. If you think about. Uh, something like uh, an atom. In this case, let's take an oxygen atom. I'll call it O2, even though there's just one here. And you put it with two little hydrogen atoms. They form this Mickey Mouse molecule. It looks like Mickey Mouse because it kind of has two ears. Uh -huh. see it. But the electrons around the hydrogen are pulled over towards the oxygen, and the hydrogen's not willing to give them up. So they end up sharing the electrons, and that forms a chemical bond. In this case, it's a covalent bond, meaning a weak bond. Uh, some substances form an ionic bond, which is much stronger, and it's very hard to break apart, like salt, for example. Mm -hmm. But in the case of, of the hydride, we have a very weak bond between the hydrogen and the oxygen. So with just a little bit of heating, we can pull the hydrogen back out. As long as it's reacted, though, it won't burn. If it's in reaction with the metal and it's forming the hydride, the metal hydride, then it can't burn because the hydrogen's already tied up with the metal. So you have to pull the hydrogen away from the metal, which fortunately is quite easy to do, and yet it's not going to just do it on itself, which, which makes it. Pretty neat. She's smiling. It's a very, 
It makes me nervous smile. <laughs> well, your, your students are commenting on how young you were in that video. <laughs> it just made me smile. Actually, I'm still pretty young. This is true. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> immature, anyway. No, it's not Well, it's, well. <laughs> it's interesting that in a, in a project like this one, there were a lot of lessons to be learned. And I think that's true in all projects. And one of the big things that I've learned over the years is the value of having a mental research laboratory. Now, some people would laugh at that, people that knew me early on, because my very first hydrogen laboratory was a little teeny building at the State Mental Hospital. Oh, boy. Yeah, and, and it wasn't, wasn't because I was interned there, <laughs> yeah. even though some wondered. But it was because I needed a building, and I saw they had one they weren't using. And some of you heard the story of how I was able to arrange to get permission <laughs> to use that building rent-free for about a year and a half, which helped me launch my company. But at any rate, uh, the idea of being able to start a company and being able to, to do all of this without any money mm -hmm. was something that I didn't really realize can be done but it can. The power to do things is bound up in our self-determination and our self-confidence. That's one of the very viable things I got from Mr. Lear is I got a realization that if you believe you can, you can. Now I have that little Learjet that will soon be mounted outside here as a monument to Bill Lear. It's kind of big. Yeah, it's a big Learjet, it's a real one. <laughs> But uh, right now it's sitting in the parking lot over at our laboratory, and so I see it every day I drive in there. And every time I see that Learjet, I just get so excited to think that little hunk of metal mm -hmm. can take off, shoot up in the sky, fly over storms, and land clear across the country. And for Bill Lear to think that he could do that and to be so stubborn not to give up no matter what kind of problems he ran into, uh, it, it inspires me. It inspires me all the time. And that's what that man did for me. That is the thing I would like to do for many other people. I would like to be the catalyst in your lives to make you realize that you can do the things that you want to do. And how do you do it? Well, uh, the way he did it was showing me by things he was doing, by telling me the stories about the things he'd done, by being an example. And so that's why I'm showing you the metal hydrides, the things that are here tonight. Now, what is going to be the future of metal hydrides? There's a lot of hydrogen cars. I don't know any of the commercial hydrogen cars that are using the metal hydrides. To my knowledge, uh, the only uh, hydrogen cars that have ever used this safe form of storage are the ones we developed. And I think that the technology that we have that made these work is still kind of a unique technology in, in all the earth. If, if anyone knows of anyone else that's built a hydrogen car with hydride storage, I'd like to hear about it. My little hydrogen book that uh, came out in the year 2000 gives all the details on how to build it. I mean, it's not like I'm keeping it secret. <laughs> I want people to use these technologies. I had a lot of patents, but you know, they, they run out after a few years, and this has been more than a few years, so it's available. But the technologies that we develop have to compete. And today, we have cars like the Tesla. Like my fuel cell cars, the Tesla has an electric motor that turns the wheels. But unlike my fuel cell car, the Tesla uses an electric battery to store the energy. Batteries are a competitor with the hydrogen fuel cell system. And interestingly, right now, head-to-head, -head, the Musk, Elon Musk batteries versus the Roger Billings fuel cells, the batteries are winning. And you can say, well, he did a better job than me. Hmm. Well, he's certainly building a lot more cars than I have, but the technology and the market are what decide. And there are problems with the hydrogen system 
that make it have a hard time competing with Elon Musk's electric battery. The metal hydrides are a very safe way to store hydrogen. But as it sits today, the biggest problem with hydrogen cars, in my opinion, someone that's been a fan of them since I was very young, which was a couple years ago, but the biggest disadvantage is a way to have safe storage. Well, this is safe, but also storage that is compact and lightweight. The one negative of these metal hydrides is that they're heavy. Now, there's some other hydrides that we've tested. Magnesium nickel hydride is about three and a half times as light as this metal hydride that's iron titanium. But when you run the exhaust over to get the hydrogen out, there's not enough heat to get it out. And so we could never figure out a practical way to use that. You'd have to burn the hydrogen in the hydride tank to get the hydrogen out. And that would be foolish, wouldn't it? So, in a way, this hydrogen system is competing with the battery system. And in the true spirit of science, the one I want to be for is the best. And if I invented it, awesome. And if someone else invented it, just as awesome. And that's one of the things about really succeeding in the marketplace is you want to go with the technology that works. You want to go with the technology that's the best. And you can, you can have debates about what is best, the most affordable, the safest, most convenient, whatever. And today, as we sit here right now, I believe that the hydrogen fuel cell solution is inferior to the electric battery solution for cars. If one of you makes a big breakthrough on making this hydride tank much lighter and still work, whoa, then I'm going to have to rethink that. But as a scientist, I'm not going to have bias because I worked on this so much. <laughs> and I think that's why I've been successful in business, because I don't want to be right um, the way Bill Lear taught me is he said, if you develop something and it doesn't work as good as what someone else invented, buy theirs. <laughs> and he says, it may hurt your feelings that yours wasn't the best. And he says, but if you buy theirs and then succeed, you can cry about it all the way to the bank. <laughs> okay. Good point. Don't believe that you can't do it. Because if you do, you'll be right. Whatever man can conceive and believe he can achieve. And that's really good advice to us all. The world is what it is today because of men and women, like the Kevlar lady, <laughs> that believed and worked hard and achieved a difference. No, it isn't easy to do something like we're talking about. If it was, everybody would have already done it. I remember one person telling me, hydrogen cars aren't very neat. And I said, why do you say that? And he says, well, if they were, someone else would have already invented it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. I am very grateful for hydrogen cars. There are some being produced, and, and I think they're going to get better, and, but they'll have to beat out the other options, or they will never really catch on to a large scale, will they? That's the way science works. But I'll tell you this. Hydrogen has made my career. I was trying to find a better alloy to use in metal hydride storage. And I had so many alloys to test, it was taking too long. And so I built a thing called an auto-hydrider. It was a little machine you put a sample of, of metal alloys in. And I would do three and four different types of metal, put them in the machine, seal it up, then go to the next one. And it would automatically activate them and test them. And the automatic part was a computer, a microprocessor. It was that auto-hydride that got me in the computer industry.
That's what got me interested in computers. And interestingly, if it wasn't for these metal hydrides, I would have never done a cellus because I wouldn't have known how. So I love hydrogen. Hydrogen has been fun. It's still the most abundant element in the universe, the most abundant element in our bodies. And it has a real future as nuclear fusion, which is the way the sun makes its energy. But it is not necessarily the only outcome of the research. In the, in the case of Kevlar, it sounds like this lady inventor was surprised when she found out how strong her fibers were. And very often in science, you get a result you didn't expect. And so you all of a sudden start figuring out, so what does that mean? What can I do with it? Where can we go? That is the attitude of science, searching for the truth, no matter who invented it. Thank you. Good night. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.